Welcome to Poetry Says. I'm Alice and today I'm here with Australian poet Stuart Barnes. Hey Stu. Hi Alice, how's it going? Yeah, good, good. So Stu, you're the poetry editor of Tincture Journal. Your own work has also appeared in a whole range of Australian poetry journals like Cordite, Rabbit, Otterliths, Plumwood Mountain and Australian Book Review. And we're soon going to see a new collection from you from University of Queensland Press called Glass Houses, which actually won the 2015 Thomas Shapcock Prize. Yes, that's right. That's so right. good to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. So great to be here. Thank you for having me. No worries. So can we start by talking a little bit about your first encounters with poetry? So how you first started reading and writing. And I'm also really interested in whether your relationship to poetry changed over the years, whether there were peaks and troughs? For as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a writer and uh, I would tell anyone who asked what I wanted to be that I wanted to be a writer. The idea of poetry, the idea of writing poetry came a little later and it came from meeting uh, Gwen Harwood when I was a kid and Gwen and I attended the same church in Hobart and we used to hang out together in the vestry after after 7am mass which was on a Sunday which was far too early and uh, Gwen was another person who asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up and I said, I want to be a writer. And she said, you're a poet. And I had no idea what that meant. Um, I'd never read any poetry at that age, so I was about 11. And <clears throat> over a number of weeks, uh, there was, a, there was a, an op shop connected to the vestry at the church, and uh, Gwen would take me down into the op shop and she'd put uh, volumes of poetry into my pockets and tell me to read it and tell me to write it. And that's, that's how it all began. Wow. So she somehow knew just by looking at you at such a young age. Yes. I, yeah, and I, I mean, I've had similar... Um, experiences with other people not not predicting their futures but just similar sort of mysterious encounters and I don't know Gwen was very she was very perceptive highly intelligent um incredibly funny and very wicked sense of humor too and yeah she was really I mean my parents were wonderfully um encouraging I think writing in the so that would have been in the eighties, and and writing uh, uh, wasn't necessarily seen as being a um, an excellent career to go into, lack of stability, low paying, etc. Um, my parents really they got me reading at a very early age, um, and and I I loved language and I loved playing around with language and I. I, I was actually thinking about this the other day. I, I was I used to make books from from tissues and scrap bits of paper and staple them together when I was very very small. Um, so that 
that interest in language and that the joy from messing around with it was there from a really early age. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like it was there from the start almost. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. So your relationship with Gwen Harwood, how long did that continue for? Uh, it It was only a few years. I stopped going to church um, a few years after that, I think when I was around 14 or 15. Um, and <clears throat> yeah, my, my relationship with Gwen wasn't, wasn't a friendship that was outside, uh, the church, but, you know, we would see her at church events, things as well, but it was just a very, it was a very warm friendship and she was very, yeah, very, very encouraging and, uh, extremely encouraging actually, and um, <clears throat> generous with her energy. And, and that, you know, I, I witnessed that, you know, her with many people, um, that she was just very enthusiastic and very energetic and, and happy to share that generosity. Yeah, that makes such a difference too when you meet somebody at the, those sort of formative years who says there's this thing called writing and you can do it. And That's right. It's fine. legitimate, you know. <laughs> it does. It does. It, it, it's okay. I, I, I had a dream since I was, you know, four or five, and um, I'd had other people telling me, you know, kids in the playground that that was ridiculous, and you know, oh yes, that'll never happen. And um, and I'm I'm very glad it has. Um, but I was, you know, I, I realised that I was pretty determined from the beginning that it w- that it would happen as well and then you know meeting Gwen really gave me the green light to become even more determined mm. um, you know to sort of say to myself that it was acceptable to follow you know to have it have a dream that seemed like a pretty wild dream when most of the people around me you know at school it was a pretty I went to a pretty conservative old boys school um had a very small but close group of friends, male and female. We had a, a sister school, of an all-girls school. Um, and those friends were pretty creative. Um, one's, one's now an architect. Uh, one, one, was a, one was a musician. Later we formed a pretty terrible band together. Oh, fantastic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, I was sort of drawn to the... <clears throat> to the people, uh, you know, the, the, uh, another was in a, you know, did a lot of drama and I think there was another budding writer as well. So, um, And so that determination that you were speaking about, did that, can, did that sort of stick with you the whole time up until now or were there times when you had sort of a break from writing or there was doubt there? Mm, there was certainly doubt. I finished year 12 in 95 and moved to Melbourne at the beginning of 96. And I was living with a partner and his friend and one of his friends. And um, we actually, I found this recently too. I was un- unpacking and repacking boxes. I found a, a short story. We, we set ourselves a challenge of writing a short story a week. I think I'll probably be corrected on that um, <clears throat> by that former partner. Um, but that's, <laughs> that's fine. But, yeah, I found this short story and it's um, 
and it's well, it's it's mostly terrible. Um, but there are, you know, I can see that, you know, there's certainly, a, I don't know, a, a sense of wanting it to go somewhere. And then I, um, so I moved to Melbourne. I went to uni. I did a BA in literature and philosophy, and that spread out. That I didn't finish that in three years. That spread out over four and a half years. And uh, you know, I, uh, I growing up in Hobart, it was, you know, Hobart was extremely conservative, very homophobic, um, and I found that in Melbourne, people were very accepting of my sexuality. And uh, yeah, there were things I wanted to do that I hadn't been able to do in, in Hobart. And for a time, uh, I was distracted and I didn't write much or at all. Also known um, as one's 20s. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I could have just said that. <laughs> no, it's very comforting to hear, hear you put it in those words. I think that's something a lot of people can relate to, the distraction and just yeah. Yeah, nothing gets put down, which is a shame because there's probably a lot, there's probably plenty to say. Then again, maybe That's it's probably best that it's not written down. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there actually was, though. I felt blocked by certain things that, that happened and there was a lot of emotional energy going into sort of getting myself <clears throat> uh, into a, into a um, more functional place. Um, and... Uh, and, and that's where I find myself now and, and sort of moving to central, moving to Rockhampton in central Queensland has, has, um, has sort of um, heightened that sense of comfort, which, which I was feeling before I left Melbourne. I, I, I moved here in early 2013 um, and... I was writing very writing poetry very seriously then, and I'd been writing it very seriously since since around two thousand and five. Mm. Um, so uh, yeah, I had some issues with mental health, and my partner at the time gave me a a notebook. Um, a small unlined notebook, and he'd written a very sweet message on the uh, uh, on a piece of paper and taped this to the cover. And uh, I can't remember exactly what it was said, but it was something along the lines of this: uh, "This is Stuart's. Um, take it out of his head and put it in the book." Oh, book or that's something really like beautiful, that. yeah. So I did, and 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 uh, things gushed out a lot. A lot came out. And I wasn't I wasn't writing poetry. I was just writing what what was in my what was in my head, what was in my mind, and that sort of cleared the way. And then I started writing poetry. I was reading and I was reading Shakespeare sonnets a lot. Um, a friend had given me the, the, that volume years before, and um, I, I had written poetry prior to that, but sort of it felt. It was quite formless, um, and there wasn't really, supposing, there was no intention of it going anywhere. And then when I started writing sonnets, I, I 
um, which was probably around 2007. That was with the aim of getting published. And, and yeah, then I started to get things published. And as I did that, you know, my confidence increased. Yeah, and then it, it reached the point where I um, I now find that I, not all the time, but I'm sometimes a little lost if I don't write something every day. And that doesn't mean I have to write something new. It could be removing or adding a line to a, a poem I'm currently working on or, or doing some editing for Tinter Journal or just you know, reading, reading poetry, but just engaging with poetry in some way every day. I, I, I don't know. There was a time where I, I used to be uh, a little afraid of writing when I was writing some things that, um, not to anyone else, but to me felt, I don't know, a bit, um, what's the word? Uh, a bit raw. And, yeah, I, I don't have that fear anymore. That's so interesting. It, it echoes so closely what I was just reading before we started about um, Sylvia Plath, who is the poet that you've brought to, for us to talk about today. Um, yes. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The thing I was reading was saying that she seems to have this tension between herself as, you know, the very raw can confessional type poet but also a poet who wants to maybe keep some things back or is more expository like needs to explain things why don't we start talking about sort of when you first encountered Plath and and what she means to you as a poet okay sure thanks Alice well um apparently I read Plath at high school um and I say apparently because um my my high school, one of my high school teachers, Liz, McQuil Liz McQuilkin, who's uh, who's a Tasmanian poet. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Liz, Liz is wonderful, and I was um, very good friends with her son Andrew at high school. So I um, spent a lot of time with Liz when I was a kid. I was over at their place a lot, and oh, okay. she taught me English at high school. And I'm not sure if it was her or my literature teacher, who Liz was good friends with, taught me Plath. But I, I don't remember reading Plath at high school, and I, I don't remember reading Plath at uni either. But I do know that on my 30th birthday, a friend from high school gave me a voucher to Brunswick Street Bookstore, and I bought... The, uh, the Gormenghast trilogy and Platt's collected poems. Mm. So that was, yeah, eight or nine years ago now. Um, and I must have, uh, there are some experiences, quite a few experiences I've had in life where I don't, I don't remember how I sort of got to the point of that thing happening. I don't really remember what, what drew me to Platt's writing, maybe there was something in the subconscious that lured me to the to the collected in Brunswick Street bookstore. Uh, but I remember reading it by the river on a really hot day and I think Daddy was one of the first poems I read. Uh, and actually The Rabbit Catcher 
as well. And there is, I, I won't go into the why because it's, <laughs> it's meant to be more appropriate for a psychology podcast. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> but there's a phrase from the rabbit catcher which echoes um, uh, part of my life. And, yeah, I, I, I read that poem. I read The Rabbit Catcher and um, don't know. It, it, you know, I just, I didn't feel a connection with Plath. I, I, I've never been someone who's felt a connection with a writer or with a singer or a songwriter. I sort of, I admire the work and don't, um, don't become, you know, um, and you mentioned this in your email um, about, you know, how the about how Plath's suicide and her marriage to Ted Hughes has or can overshadow her life and her poetry. And I've, I suppose I've always tried to, I have been more interested in the work. Um, the work is the thing that matters to me and it's the same with music. It's the music that, that matters that, um, that I, you know, that is, um, that is a kind of drug. That said, you know, I find Plath's, the books about Plath fascinating, some of them. I've read her letters and um, journals and most recently um, a book which is more, which which is, you know, quite aligned with how I think about Plath. It's by Gail Crother, a UK academic who, um, and sorry, the book is called, um, uh, it's also written by Elizabeth Sigmund, who was a friend of Plath when she lived in Devon. Yeah, so it's called Sylvia Plath in Devon and Years Turning. I, I enjoyed that very much. So why don't we hear Ariel now, the poem, not the entire work, um, and we'll talk. Yes. <laughs> and then we'll talk about, um, I have a lot of questions about this, so. Okay, ready. great. Okay. Ariel, Stasis in Darkness. Then the substanceless blue pour of tour and distances. God's lioness, how one we grow, pivot of heels and knees. The furrow splits and passes, sister to the brown arc of the neck I cannot catch. Nigger eye berries cast dark hooks, black, sweet, blood mouthfuls, shadows. Something else hauls me through air. Thighs, hair, flakes from my heels, white Godiva iron peel, dead hands, dead stringencies, and now I foam to wheat, a glitter of seas. The child's cry melts in the wall, and I am the arrow, the dew that flies suicidal, at one with the drive into the red eye, the cauldron of morning. an amazing so, poem it is an amazing poem yes before i bombard you with my questions what is it about this poem in particular that appeals to you so much or is it an appeal or is it more just an intrigue i suppose maybe a better way of phrasing that for me it's um i don't think it's the perfect poem 
but I think it's one of the most perfect poems in the English language that I've read to date. It appeals because it draws together three ideas, three fascinations, and it seems to do this so effortlessly. Yeah, it definitely has an effortlessness about it, for sure. Mm. It feels like it's just coming out completely naturally, and yet every single one of those stanzas throws you off in a different direction, I feel like. It, it does, and, and throws off is an, is an interesting phrase to use for this poem, which in part is about the speaker taking a horse ride. Oh, okay. Or sorry, the speaker riding a horse, mm, and mm. there's a hint or there's the potential of the speaker actually being thrown from the horse, Ariel. Right. But she, yes. That's what I was going to say first off, is that the poem really suggests damage to the body, but there also maybe there seems to be a suggestion of the spirit being damaged, I thought. Um, but then there's also this kind of rage in it and, and definitely forward motion. So now that, now that I know that it's about riding a horse, it makes a lot more sense. Yes, well, um, the po- uh, Ariel was published posthumously and it was published under the title of The Horse. Um, but the title in itself gives a few clues. Um, so Ariel was the name of the horse that Plath rode, um, that Plath actually rode. Um, there was a fascination. Um, sorry, Ariel is the... Hebrew name uh, for Jerusalem, but it also means Lion of God. Uh, so we can see in the fourth line, God's Lioness. Mm, so I was going to ask about that. Yeah, so, so Platt's transformed. So she, she's referring to the horse when she says God's Lioness, um, I think. Uh, but she's also transformed that into uh, a feminine being. A female being, yep. not masculine, and, and also there's the third um, Ariel, which is Ariel from Shakespeare's Tempest, which is which is another big clue. Ariel in the Tempest was in the service of a witch, and he was freed by Prospero, but then he was cast in the service of Prospero, but he was eventually. He eventually received his freedom. So there's, um, I, I agree with what you, you said before about rage and physical damage because that's certainly there, especially in the first one, two, three, four, five. Sort of there's a suggestion of it there in the first six stanzas. The poem changes at the seventh stanza. It's where the theme of the poem up until then, the first six, six stanzas are very much about riding the horse. And after that, it becomes something more symbolic, more spiritual, perhaps. So this is where it starts. White Godiva? Yes, yes sorry. White Godiva, I unpeel, dead hands, dead stringencies. So Plath links 
So that stanza links is sorry, it connects the two halves of the poem, unpeel rhyming with heels, flakes from my heels, and then stringencies rhyming with seas. It's starting to come together for me now. I think it's yeah, it's one of those that really does reward looking at it very closely and knowing those those references. Yes. There's, I mean, there's so many questions I have about this, but one of the one of the lines I'm really fascinated by is um, after God's lioness, she says, "How one we grow," mm-hmm. and that's so interesting. Why has she said it that way? Why hasn't she gone, "How we grow one"? Why is God's lioness something that we grow? It's just so, yeah, it's a real conundrum that line. But, but um, it. It forces you to to keep reading because you I don't know it's just such a fascinating way to put it. So that's that was my first kind of line that I just went whoa okay. Sure okay. Yeah. I think I think the I think how one we grow sounds more religious or spiritual than if it had been written one way, uh, yeah. written a different written differently. Um, therefore, that's that sort of link there to God in the previous line, or gods. Um, uh, also, grow at the end of that line, rhyming with furrow at the end of the next line, propels, you know, sort of gives the poem its motion as well. And and in those two lines, God's line asks how one we grow, Platts, or, or, or the speaker is becoming one with Ariel with the horse, um, with the other, which which we sort of begin to see later with the other aerials of the poem. Yeah, right. So you mentioned that there are three themes or strands that the poem pulls together. Can you spell yes. out what those are for us? Yeah, sure. So, so uh, Ariel, uh, one Ariel. Ariel number one is the uh, the sprite or the spirit from Shakespeare's Tempest, and Plath uh, was a big fan of the Tempest um, from childhood. Ariel means lion of God in Hebrew. Um, it's also mentioned in the Bible as. Uh, as another word for Jerusalem. And uh, Plath had a fascination with the Jewish people. Um, It's mentioned in uh, other poems, Lady Lazarus, Daddy, for example. And Ariel is also the name of the horse on which she rides. So there's the sort of the physicality of the horse then something more spiritual that you know Ariel the spirit of the air um and also uh, a sort of mysticism as well the Hebrew element so I mean if we look at the if we look at the form of the poem every verse sorry every stanza but the final one is in three lines so I think the poem is quite literally uh, threading those ideas together through the poem and then we reach the final single line verse where everything's drawn together. Yeah, right. So it's suggesting 
those three themes to you every time in every sort of triplet? Yeah, sort of a, a cumulative effect over the poem, a, a, a drawing together. Um, the first the first half of the poem, so that's the um, so that's the stasis in darkness verse, and then the next five, so the six ends with flakes from my heels. It's very much uh, the physicality of the speaker riding the horse. Um, she's talking about the furrow in the earth. It splits and passes. It's sister to the brown arc of the neck. I cannot catch. So um, I think here she's talking about the everything kind of blurring and the the earth becoming the earth also. So the, so. God's lioness, how one we grow, the speaker's becoming at one with the horse, and then the horse is becoming at one with the earth. So the first half of the poem, which is up until White Godiva, I unpeel, to me feels very earthly, <clears throat> excuse me, and then seems to take off in, in a very different direction in the second half. Yeah, yeah, I'm starting to see that. It's, it's all coming together. And that word unpeel is such an amazing choice as well. You can sort of see the body unpeeling from the horse and that suggests not it's not she doesn't just thud to the ground, but she unpeels and perhaps, you know, as you say, floats off into this this different realm. And then you've got that stanza yeah. and now I foam to wheat. <clears throat> that's really that's yeah, again, just throws you off so much th- foam to wheat <laughs> it does um yeah. yeah i i think of demeter is represented by wheat when i think of foam to wheat but it's it's a very unusual phrase yeah i foam to wheat. um i think a glitter of seas is particularly beautiful and the way she's the way platt's rhymed a glitter of seas with dead hands dead dead stringencies um you know Plath, wrote a lot about um, the role of women um, in society, in the home. And she's also, I think, talking about unpeeling, you know, the stringencies, the, the strict rules of society in the time when wrote this poem. God, it's there's so much in this poem. You're, you're convincing me. You're definitely... You're bringing me around to the to the idea that this might actually be a perfect poem. <laughs> it's one of the reasons why. I mean, it's such an economical poem. There's, you know, it's it's one of the, in terms of you know, uh, and I haven't counted how many words there are in the poem, but in terms of if you look at the other poems in Ariel, it certainly seems to be one of the shortest. But so much is packed in there. This idea of Godiva, bringing Godiva in as well, Lady Godiva, who rode through, who, who supposedly rode through town <clears throat> naked on a horse to uh, so that her her husband and Earl would reduce or cancel the town's high taxes is interesting too. Um, you know, there's that sort of, it's, it's adding a, potentially historic and sort of mythic element to the poem also. Yeah, and is there a sense of sacrifice there too or 
No, I think so. Sacrifice and and sexuality as well, um, because Godiva was naked and she was covered only by her long hair. Um, but there's definitely a sexuality um, in there. Yes. Yeah, right. And 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 sacrifice. Um, I mean, the poem starts off stasis in darkness, and uh, you know, so there's no movement in absolute nothingness, and then this beautiful pour of Tor, which is wonderful again, and then this movement through the rest of the poem, splitting and passing, and something else hauling the speaker through air and things or flakes flaking from the speaker's heels. Yeah, there's so much movement all through it, but it's also got this precision that is just phenomenal. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, probably just one other thing I'd like to say about Ariel. It's just the the three final verses, so the, the two or three lines and then the, the one line. The rhyme also changes after the white Godiva, or it changes in the white Godiva stanza with with white. After that, there are many eye sounds. There's white Godiva, I, unpeel in the next stanza, and now I, foam to wheat, the child's cry. So the sort of a, a more upright element to the poem. In the first half, it's quite horizontal, then it becomes vertical in the second half. Mm. And the speaker becomes an arrow, which is very masculine. And then she's also the Jew that flies suicidal. And, uh, of course, much has been made about Platt's suicide, and unfortunately it's, it can overshadow her writing, although, um, although as, we, as we were talking about in an email, I... I think that a lot of people are turning away from this, and certainly uh, um, friends I, uh, friends who love Plath aren't aren't interested in her suicide, or aren't, aren't interested. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, um, it can't be the only thing that we focus on, I guess. No, it's, that's right. That's it's a right. fact, but it's not the only fact. That, that's that's right, exactly. Um, yes, but I, I think the word the word suicidal is an interesting one, and it's. Um, I think there are, it's it's talking. Uh, I, I think Plath's written about a sort of dissolving of the self, and not a physical death. Yeah, and, and the final line is just one of my favourite lines of poetry, where that that I E Y E can also be read as I, as in I the I you know I, so where she's saying I am the cauldron of morning. And there's a wonderful pun there on mourning and, you know, mourning the loss of something as well. Um, so it's, yeah, right right until the end it's open to interpretation, but there's this drive throughout. Uh, really, I think it's a poem about creativity, um, ultimately, and, and freedom. And, you know, sort of leaving behind earthly desires. It's amazing. Well, let's move on to the topic of centos now. So centos is a form that I know you enjoy writing in, but can you tell our listeners who haven't heard of this form before what a cento actually is? Sure, sure. So 
excuse me, a cento is a poem that is pieced together from whole lines from other poems. It might be pieced together from whole lines from songs or lines from the newspaper or a novel. Yeah, anything. But unlike a remix poem, which I've done as well, where you or where I've picked my favourite, I've always been obsessed with 12 inches and remixes. And um, But, yeah, <clears throat> unlike the remix where I've picked my favourite words and put them, you know, rearranged them, the Cento's put together um, exactly as the lines appear, um, yeah, taken from different sources. You can't pick and choose where that sentence starts and ends. You have to use the whole thing. That's right. You have, yeah, you have to use the whole line or else it's not, not a Cento. Right. And you wrote a wonderful one of these um, that was published in a recent edition of a rabbit poetry journal, um, which I'd highly recommend people seek out because it's just wonderful. It's an amazing journal. Um, but that Is was made it? up of, of lines from um, Songs by the Cure. It was, yes. Um, my favourite band. And it takes a line from each song from each album. I cento each album yeah so it starts off with the cure's first album three imaginary boys up until their most recent which is 413 dream when i first read that issue of rabbit i went straight to that poem because i was just so excited to see how you'd done it and the wonderful thing about it is that it takes what are already incredible lyrics and gives them this new kind of resonance you see them all really differently some listeners might be hearing this discussion and feeling doubtful, like how can you how can you just take something and put it somewhere else and how can that be a poem? Mm. But it really does totally change it and yet it's completely um, – it's almost like a tribute. Would, would that be fair to say or is that yeah, too strong it, a word? <laughs> no, it is a tribute. Um, <clears throat> and I, I, I really, you know, I mean, I, I respect – um, the way Robert Smith writes, I, I wanted, you know, I wanted to pay homage. I also wanted to, you know, there is some, there's some rhyme and slant rhyme in these centos, in or in this cento made of thirteen parts. Um, so I wanted it to, I wanted it to still feel musical, as well. Um, but uh, but thank you, Alice. I mean, it, it's you know I. It, it's a, it's a, it's an unusual process writing a I mean, it's an unusual process writing a poem. To <laughs> True. <laughs> um, and writing writing a change is perhaps no different to another poem, except that I, you know, I do try to. Some people piece their changes together in, in a way that's um, that feels more um, disjointed, and I admire that. But I prefer to piece mine together in a way that's not disjointed or not so disjointed um, so that there's a more of a, um, a clear or a defined narrative, I guess. Yeah. Um, but, I, yeah, I mean, I, I liked this was this poem took me quite some time to write. Um, it's probably one of the longest poems. I feel it feels odd saying that I wrote it. I feel I always feel odd talking about writing centos because somebody's already written them. Um, I'm rewriting them, but yeah, it was it was a fun poem, and it was 
I've dedicated the poem. It says for T and and T's for Therese, who was a friend, uh, who is a friend, uh, but she was the person who um, first played me the Cure's music many oh. many years now. So yes, oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Well, I would definitely encourage people to go and find that poem in Rabbit if they can and. Um, <laughs> But as an example of how this works, why don't we look at your Cento Tenens, which was published in Cordite back in February this year. Sure, sure. I read this poem and I had that sinking feeling you get when you read a really good poem that someone's just published. <laughs> you just think, ah, that's great. Damn it. <laughs> so... I I know that feeling. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah, we're all familiar. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a weird way to give a compliment. Um, but yes, can we can we hear this one, please? Yes, of course, of course. Tenons, you'll feel quite at home here at the earth's end, at the end of my bed, at the end of the day, at the end. Words won't be an issue. Time will end. An end to grey, on a slope above the endless blue, and end up a clinking dead end. Wits the one weapon for my fending, bud at each flamboyant ending. I have come to the end. Endless retakes, getting it right. That is all. End of message. End of message. So <laughs> good. So... <laughs> Can you talk me through the process? Because at the end of this, there is a, a list that um, lists out all the poems that these lines have come from. Are they all poems? They are, yes, yeah. and they're all Australian uh, Australian women poets. And obviously each line has the word end in it somewhere. It does. Uh end or ending or yeah endless but some mostly end or some take on end right transformation yes and so when you were drawing these lines together was that a fairly instinctive process of just kind of bringing together your favorite books with female australian poets and finding the ends in their poems or uh to be honest it was a bit of a mess this one um, <laughs> Probably went through about 70 drafts, yeah, which is an average for, for each poem. Um, it was Some of it was from memory. Some of it was going through books I have. Some of it was uh, searching on the internet for others, you know, searching for my favourite authors, you know, for books that I didn't have. But the, I think it was the first line and the last that I discovered pretty early on and, and they kind of asserted themselves as first and last. So that was the first is you'll feel quite at home here at the earth's end. And and that that just felt like it it was the first line. And then that is all end of message. Um, yeah, felt uh, the, the theme for this issue of Cordite 2 was the end, um, which was edited by Pam Brown. Um, and yeah, so 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 that line that is all end of message felt like it, it just absolutely had to be the poem's last line. I've I've said in the past that writing a chente feels like um, playing Tetris, <laughs> which I'm, I 
like I said, a computer game I'm not very good at, sort of the piecing together of, you know, lines until they actually feel like they fit the right way. Um, yeah, and I eventually eventually got there. So it was, it was, you know, from memory and from some research and, yeah, and from going through through books. 70 drafts, that, that makes me feel a lot better about some of the poems that I'm still <laughs> carving away at. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. No, but I just, I love it because endings are never, well, not never, but they're really neat and mm. often uncomfortable and um, lumpy and just kind of difficult in lots of ways. And um, That's right. They can yeah. be awkward or they can be seamless, which is, you know, I, I try to make my, I try to piece my chintos together seamlessly, but they don't always come out seamlessly. It does feel like, um, like you say, like Tetris, you, you, it's fun because you get to choose all these lines and these phrases that are significant to you for whatever reason you choose. And then you get to move them around and see how, yeah, they, right. how the meaning changes as you move things around. And going back to that idea of, well, I, you know, I've always, you know, loved, uh, you know, remixes as well. And some are, you know, musical remixes, I mean, and some are so, some are so, um, so different to, um, to the original. Yeah, and some you know, are much better as well. They are, yeah. They yeah. kind of make the song. And that, um, I definitely don't want to end without mentioning your wonderful remix that you wrote with Michelle Seminara of Sylvia Plath's poem, The Rabbit Catcher. So it's a remix of, you remixed Plath's poem, The Rabbit Catcher, and then Michelle remixed Ted Hughes' poem, The Rabbit Catcher. That's right, yeah. 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 And so yeah. I took all three of these poems, the two originals and the remix, to my poetry group. And they just, I, I was a little bit worried that they wouldn't necessarily like the remixes, but they just loved it. They just, they went so deep into them. It was, it was just so much fun. Finally, let's talk about your forthcoming book with University of Queensland Press. So this is a collection called Glass Houses. Yes. But it had a different title back when it was awarded the Thomas Shapcock Prize last year. What was it called at that point? It was called The Stay Sales. Yeah, right. Um, That's a really interesting title. It is. It's a, it's a particular sail that, that gives speed on a ship. So the collections, uh, it, it's um, Glasshouses is a number of poems from the Stay Sales manuscripts. And also some poems from another manuscript, Blacking Out, and other poems, which was runner-up for the Thomas Shapcock Prize in 2014, which was a you know a a heavier manuscript, um, a heavier read, but there needed to be a bit of a backstory there for some of these poems. For <clears throat> yeah, there needed to be a story behind the poems from from the stay sales for it to all fit together. Um, yeah, so that was a lot of fun too, working out what should what should remain and what should go. Yeah, right. It's interesting that you put it in terms of story too. I don't think that's that's something I've really considered before. Is that you know poetry books aren't just kind of these one after the other snapshots that 
there is an arc. That's right. Um, and I, I, look, I guess that idea came to me when I read Frida uh, Hughes' introduction to the restored edition of Sylvia Platt's Ariel. Frida was Frida's Sylvia's Sylvia Platt's and Ted Hughes' daughter, and she wrote that. I think Platt had written that she wanted the manuscript to begin with the word love and end with the word spring. Oh, and okay. Yeah, to create, you know, a definite narrative. And I I remember that and I didn't structure, I didn't arrange my book, you know, it's it's nothing like Ariel, um, the, the book as opposed to the poem. But the idea of creating a narrative was... You know, it was new to me until I read that, and uh, it was <clears throat> something that I thought suited the poems. Um, and also, um, during the editing process, um, Felicity Plunkett mentioned some very interesting things about, you know, sort of um, poems being in conversation with one another, and the last line of one poem talking to the first line of the next. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought a lot about those really, um, fascinating ideas and, and, um, yeah, so the book, the book will actually be out in a few weeks and it will be launched at, at Queensland Poetry Festival. So. That's wonderful. How does it feel to be so close to launching it now? Is it a bit of nervousness or? Um, a bit of nervousness, but, um, actually, um, I'm very, very, very excited. Um, for a long time, I struggled to speak in public and I had to <laughs> avoid anything that had anything to do with public speaking. Um, and, of course, I, well, when I spoke at Queensland Poetry Festival last year, I had to, um, yeah, I had to navigate that that discomfort. And, um, yeah, now I'm, I'm actually really... I'm really, really looking forward to it. Yeah, it, it's a great festival. This festival in particular, I mean, um, the co-directors, Annie Tafew and David Stavanger, took on the festival last year and it was it was fabulous. And, uh, and, and this year I think it's going to be even better and there's a big focus on um, an Indigenous and not just Australian uh, but poetry <clears throat> as well this year. So... So a really, really great lineup. Um, so there's, it's queenslandpoetryfestival.com, which then automatically takes you to the um, to the program, which you can get there directly. It's um, lostlanguagefound.com, and the yeah the the um, <clears throat> the theme for this year's festival is lost language found. Oh, it sounds like an absolutely wonderful festival and a wonderful place to be launching your first book. So best of luck with it thank you Alice and yeah thank you so much for your time today oh thank you it's been wonderful chatting so thanks for listening everyone and you can find show notes at poetrysays.com and you can chat to me on twitter at poetrysays <laughs>